If we were to cut our food waste globally by 50%, that would actually draw down carbon emissions more than the whole world converting to solar farms. Doing our bit, that's not enough anymore. Today, we all need to be doing everything we can. Welcome to the second renaissance where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. In this second season, we explore how sustainability is elevating our human consciousness and catalyzing us to create within constraints. We decipher why now is the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity since the dawn of industrialization and what leaders can do to harness the winds of change. I'm Anders Sommer-Nielsen, global futurist, impact champion and father, and your host for The Second Renaissance. On this episode of The Second Renaissance, I sit down for a chinwag with Sarah Wilson, author, minimalist, and philanthropist. Sarah is a New York Times, a number one Amazon bestselling author, founder of iQuitSugar.com, and former editor of the Australian Cosmopolitan magazine. She campaigns against consumerist waste, and her latest book is This One Wild and Precious Life, which is my most recent holiday read, a book about connecting to what is important, living a values-led life, and designing a better future for ourselves and our children. We explore climate change-driven pre-traumatic stress disorder, why 3.5% of the population needs to rise up in non-violent protest to drive meaningful climate action, the green shoot case for climate optimism, and how to get 12 meals out of one organic chicken, and much more. Tune into this manifesto for action and call to arms with Sarah Wilson. Welcome to the second renaissance, Sarah. It's lovely to be here. Great to have you on uh, the show and uh, you're dialing in from the glorious Bondi today. <laughs> yeah, I am a cliche. You are a cliche. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yes, no, this is where I live and work. And of course, we've all been stuck in the one spot. So um, I have been here in Bondi far longer than I anticipated, but not a bad place to be stuck. I'm, uh, I'm dialing in from a different beach up in uh, Avalon Beach, where of course, one of our favorite bookstore, uh, bookstores, Bucacino yes. stores and, and stocks some of your fabulous books. I also know that some of the uh, some of the really cool things that are happening from a climate action perspective that sometimes seem to start in Bondi under your tutelage and inspiration sometimes reach up to the beaches up here as well. So one of those is, of course, yes. um, you know, stopping the use of disposable coffee cups. Tell me a little bit about that's right. Tell me a little bit about that campaign. You conveniently um, avoided using the, the, the wor rude wording that I um, that I used in the campaign here in Bondi. Um, but yeah, I did a campaign to target takeaway coffee cup use. So here in Bondi, um, you know, locals toss 75,000 cups cups, single-use cups that can't be recycled, um, no matter what you think. Um, they're not biodegradable, despite what everybody tries to tell you, unless you've got an industrial composter in your neighbourhood or in your backyard. Um, they go into landfill um, every week, 75,000. And so a cafe owner reached out to me after hearing me rant and rave about it on some radio show. And um, she said, look, you know, why don't we try to do something? So we joined forces and um, managed to get, in the end, 100 cafes on board. Now, the Avalon team or some people up in Avalon were watching what I was doing and said, well, we'll join you. And they, I think, managed to get every cafe in sort of the greater Avalon area on board. Um, Leichhardt here in Sydney and sort of in the inner west uh, did the same, Thoreau South. Um, and so we didn't actually anticipate it spreading, but it did because everybody's desperate for someone to go first for someone to put their neck out and and solve a problem which often has the problem coming from two directions so cafe owners don't feel confident enough to go first and ban the cups because they're concerned that people will go to other cafes their competitors and consumers want it to happen but they're not going to make the move themselves when takeaway coffee cups are so available so this is how change has to go about someone's just got to go first so 
I did. <laughs> this sounds like a very, you know, Aussie sort of conversation, which is, of course, the, the you know, the natural culture of uh, starting the day with, with, with a coffee on, on the beach. We're very yeah. lucky in, the, in, this, in this blessed country to, 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 to have that sort of morning, uh, morning ritual, right? So we're already talking about our strong flat whites, three-quarter three full and, and all the rest. I don't know what your poison is. Um, well, mine used to be a long black. Um, I've been a long black for about 25, maybe 35 years. Um, 35 is an exaggeration, but it'd be about 30 years. Uh, but I go through phases of going on to decaf. So I'm on decaf at the moment. I like to test my resolve, um, but it's, a, it's just a straight up black coffee. And I can say, you know, I have never once had a single use disposable coffee cup. Um, so I managed to get through all of the pandemic without it. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's really not an excuse, I think, especially when you live by the beach and you can see the impact of plastics in the ocean. So on the one hand, I'll see friends and family, you know, in my area, go off and, you know, sign a petition about plastics in the ocean. And then I'll see them the next day with a takeaway coffee cup with a BPA laced lid. Like it's insanity. So rather than complain about it, I figure we just put together campaigns that makes, and this is a phrase I use a lot in the climate movement. It's kind of the missing piece I feel is we've got to make the new way more charming than the status quo. We can't get people to do change unless we show them how the, the new way is going to be better and is actually going to be more beneficial from a whole range of points of view that affect the individual because we are in a very, very individualistic era. And I don't like it, but this is the situation we're in. This is the, the matrix I've got to work within. Um, so, yeah. That's, that's generally the way I try to target these complex issues. So you've, you've touched on a number of things here, everything from, you know, food packaging to biodegradable to, oh, yeah. to composting, <laughs> food, food, food waste, um, you know, food and the way we consume it, what we consume, how we dispose of it afterwards. I mean, these are all intricately linked to actually you know, achieving some of the potential solutions, but also, of course, what are some of the sort of environmental uh, banditry that we engage in. I've heard that you're very, very passionate about food waste and reducing it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we, we hear about, you know, when food goes into landfill, or, you know, quite frequently, if it is in, you know, if, if it's in plastic, then, you know, we produce methane gases, which are even worse than, than, than carbon. Mm -hmm. uh, this sounds like it's one of the, your passion topics. Can you tell us a little bit more about that sort of circularity and, and yeah. what humans can do on, a, on an individual basis? Well, I suppose it was in many ways my introduction to, I guess, the climate crisis, to my um, problem with capitalism and consumption. I grew up in a subsistence living farm where mum and dad were poor and so we um, and they could only afford petrol to go into town once a week and that's how often they did the shopping and so when food ran out it ran out you know there was no food <laughs> that was just how it worked and there's eight of us in the family and so we had to ration things out and make sure nothing went to waste there was also no garbage collection service so anything that came onto where you know the property we lived on um, it had to be repurposed we had to do something with it um, and we just grew up that way and it made sense and it was efficient and we didn't have just crap. There was just no crap, you know. Um, everything, every single thing was reused. You know, Dad kept the washing machine going with old inner tire tubes from our BMXs, you know, and he would rebuild the car with a second-hand car he bought for $200 and he'd just pull the pieces out and, and so on. Um, our clothes were from St Vinnie's that my grandfather, he worked there and he tore up the clothes they couldn't sell at Vinnie's into mechanics rags, but he'd bring out the bags to us first and we'd go rummage through and find clothes and we'd fix them and sew bits together and all that kind of thing. So my introduction was was in and around the food space, I suppose, just as a thing that made sense. Like it seemed insane to waste anything. Um, but I've since learned that food waste um, is the number three contributor to carbon emissions at the moment. So I should explain that Paul Horden, who wrote Project Drawdown, it's a big, big book. If anybody's out there wanting to work out how they can make a difference, it's a really great Bible for this. Um, it's a rundown of the hundred kind of consumer-based practices um, or just even you know, consumer-based practices, I suppose, large and small, um, that contribute carbon emissions. And it's, you know, number one is, I can't remember what it is, but number three is food waste. 
Um, so food, the amount of carbon emissions produced or greenhouse gas emissions produced by the food that we send into landfill is um, far greater. Like the, if we were, I've got to rephrase that actually. If, if we, we were, were to cut, cut our, our food, food waste globally, globally by 50%, that, that would actually draw down, down carbon, carbon emissions more than, than every, every, the, whole the whole world converting, converting to solar, solar farms. farms. So that puts it into context. If food waste were a nation, it would be the third biggest emitter after China and the States. So this is something to bear in mind. Now, the other thing to bear in mind is that we as consumers are the biggest contributors to food waste. So it's not the restaurants, it's not the farmers, it's us as consumers. We throw out approximately one in three of our bags of shopping each week just because we're not taking the time to repurpose the scraps, to eat the leftovers, to ensure that we don't let the coriander go off because we haven't wrapped it in the right way. Um, and that's unforgivable. It's unforgivable. We can't complain about the climate crisis when something just so significant is right there in front of us and it's waiting for us to make the change. There are a whole heap of things that are systemic. There are a whole heap of things that uh, we need government and major corporations to shift on, right? And we shouldn't take responsibility for that as consumers. But when it comes to food waste, there's an opportunity there. So, yes, that's why I'm so passionate about it. And there is enough food on the planet to feed everyone. So it's not just a climate issue. It's also a humanitarian ethical issue. There are people still starving around the world. And even in this country, in Australia, there are still a number of people that are nutritionally compromised. And... We have the opportunity to waste less food and then more of that food can be available for everyone. There's, there's enough food on the planet for everyone. And so, so some ways in which you can do this on an individual basis would be to say that, you know, you, you engage in, in consumption of, you know, animals where, where it's very much from nose to tail, for example, that you, you, you also consume the less popular cuts of meat, for example, that I think even in, in, in your own podcast, Wild, you talk about the fact that, you know, you cook or get about 14 different meals from an organic chicken, for example. And of course, you know, some of these things are pretty old school, like my grandma used to do this in Sweden, and we do it as well. I mean, we, we uh, boil the bones and get the great, you know, collagen, etc. from them and make, you know, bone broth, etc., but um, then, of course, once we've consumed something, what, what are some of the things we can do sort of back at home? Is it, is it composting? What, what other things can we do around the home to live a more conscious life? Well, absolutely. Worm farms and composting and recycling, they should be the, 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 sort of the behaviours of last resort. Okay? So it's the minimise uh, consumption. It should be number one. That should be 95% of our effort is minimised, right? Then we reuse, repurpose um, and and recycle compost and so on, dispose of um, responsibly. Unfortunately, so much effort's been put onto composting, like people have a takeaway coffee cup or they'll have something and they'll go, oh, but it's compostable, it's recyclable. And it's like, but that's only part of the footprint. A big part of the footprint is the manufacturing of that single-use product and then the fact that it's been carted around the countryside and then it's had to be stored in air conditioning and, and so refrigeration. Um, so people just get into this idea that they can cons keep consuming and that there's these infinite resources on a finite planet. Like, are we insane? Like, that just doesn't stack up, does it? We can't keep consuming these things and just because we can kind of bury them in a particular way, uh, that'll help things. So, look, recycling, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, Australia does not have a great recycling system, so just bear that in mind, like don't count on it. But, look, there's other little nerdy things I do. So one thing I do, my guilty indulgence is frozen peas, right? I have this theory that you can add frozen peas to a meal and it'll fix everything. It sort of, you know, mellows out the flavors. It can add some nice texture when you, it's lacking in a meal, whatever it might be. Some nice sweet. They're very, they're very underrated, very underrated as a, as, as a vegetable. And people get funny about frozen meal, frozen foods, but in fact, things that are starchy like peas and corn um, are actually best when buying bought frozen because they're snap frozen at the farm, preventing the starches from breaking down, you know, and so it does actually hold more of the nutritional um, profile of a food. And, and just to throw in another tidbit, buying berries 
um, frozen is actually a really good idea because most of the pesticides, um, so say if you can't afford organic and it's quite hard to get organic berries, um, if you buy them frozen, they're less likely to have pesticides because they're mostly used in the transporting to supermarkets and to shop shelves. So that's another little tip. And also you get a whole lot in a bag without the punnet. Now, that brings me to bags. Frozen peas or if it was a berries or something like that, I then use the bag as my bin liner. There is no need to buy more plastic you know, when we've got so much plastic coming into the house. So I use my, you know, uh, people send me postage. I use that as my bin liner, whatever it might be. I use these little bags as as the bin liner um, rather than getting um, a new plastic bag for such things. Um, what else do I do? I mean, I don't peel um, most foods. So say if you're making a smoothie, uh, why would you peel, dehull the strawberry? You're only going to throw kale or spinach leaves in with it. Keep the, the greenery on it. Just throw the whole thing in. Um, I often will freeze strawberries. So every now and then in, in Bondi where I live at the markets, they have loose strawberries. I don't buy strawberries if they come in a punnet because of the plastic. You can't reuse it. I don't know what to use it for. Some of the blueberry ones are the perfect size for a sandwich. So you can actually use them as a wonderful storage uh, container for, you know, lunch boxes, put the sandwich in there. Um, but I avoid those kinds of things. But occasionally when they're fresh, you know, and loose, I, I buy them and you can just throw them in. Kiwi fruit, why would you peel it if it's going into a, a smoothie? Um, you know, root vegetables should never be peeled. Um, you know, eat them, peel and all. You've got most of the nutrition in the peel. So I promote that kind of thing. Um, ditto, why would you de take the core out of an apple? Just chuck the whole, in, the whole thing in, you know, to a smoothie. Um, so I try to use absolutely everything. My apple cores I put into a into a Ziploc bag, often a Ziploc bag that some other foods come in and I keep it in the freezer. And when I've got a full bag, I make apple cider vinegar with it just from home it takes two seconds you just add salt and a tiny little bit of sugar and it ferments and it becomes your own apple cider vinegar without having to buy it from the store um let me see where else can i begin <laughs> big start and finish i mean one of the things i i do is i very much avoid going to the shops so i gamify using up everything in my fridge you know, um, I bulk cook everything and bulk freeze everything. So I've always got little bits of food that I can use to make a meal. And I bulk cook maybe things like um, kale and spinach um, so that it doesn't go off. You know, you get a big bunch of kale and I live on my own. I don't eat it in one hit. So I par cook it to about 70% and then put them in like little bags or little containers and put them in the freezer and it doesn't go off. Um, the other thing I can throw in there, I'm just like jumbling all over the place here, but storage is super important. So if you've got an old tea towel or a, or a um, pillow slip that's got a rip in it, use it for storing your herbs and your leafy greens, all kinds of vegetables and fruit. So I get home from the markets or from the supermarket, I put all the vegetables and fruit in a big sink of water, wash it all, and then I put them while they're still damp into these bags, just old pillow slips and tea towels and I wrap them up and when you put them into the crisper wrapped in this fabric you'll find that coriander and mint will keep for two weeks you'll find your vegetables can last three weeks um, and they'll be in pristine condition and then you're not throwing out if you do that at the beginning of the week you then don't have to go to the supermarket and there's nothing more depressing than soggy coriander at the back of your crisper. It's just horrible. It depresses me when I see it at friends' houses, you know, and there's no reason for it. Store it properly. You don't have this problem. You don't have the depression, the angst sink, you know, when you open the fridge. So, I mean, these are these are like fascinating ways and I, I feel like they're, they're quite, you know, old school. I mean, you, you alluded to, to growing up on a, on a farm, I believe, outside of Canberra, if, if, my, if my readings um, served me right. And farm is a romantic term. It was a patch of dust in the middle of nowhere. Um, yes, yeah, scratching out scratching out sort of food and from from very poor soil and we had some goats for milk and meat but yes there you go so i mean so some some of the these lessons are off the land they're sort of agrarian and my, my, my grandmother in sweden very much you know grew up on a farm in in, in west gothland and and so i i think i've inherited many of these sort of cultural ways of of, of looking at a waste many people that maybe haven't had that sort of connection 
to, to the land. And, and luckily, it sounds like both you and I have it in, in some way, shape or form, whether cross-generationally or through your experience growing up on, on, on a little patch of dust as, as, as you look <laughs> to it. Um, but when we look at the sort of, you know, we're looking at the individual localized level here. And of course, we, we all need to do, do our bit in the way that we, you know, consciously consume and, and recycle, etc. But when it comes to climate, a lot of the the solutions are also on a planetary and global level. Mm. Uh, you're obviously influencing people and, 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 and helping shape the agenda and the discourse. But, um, you know, if we look at some of the big meetings like COP26, did it, did it deliver anything? What, what, what's happening on the sort of, you know, meta level here in terms of systemic change? Not enough. And you use the phrase, we do our bit. You know, we all need to do our bit. And my argument to that, if I can just jump in there, is... Um, no, that's not enough anymore. 30 years ago, doing our bit, you know, was, was important. Today, we all need to be doing everything we can all at once now. If we want to survive, if we want the human species to continue in something resembling comfort, um, you know, comfortable living. So uh, that really needs to be emphasised that it's not about just doing your bit um, anymore sadly. So part of what we need to be doing, we need to be doing these small things. And I take your point that these small individual actions um, are sort of very small fry compared with what needs to be happening at a global international level. And absolutely that change needs to happen. But I don't see them as separate because generally what happens is when you get people engaged at their personal level and they, they go all in, and go, this matters to me so much. And, you know, the back of my book, This One Wild and Precious Life, I basically point out we've got to be reminded of why we're doing this. And we, we, we will fight to save what we love and we've got to remind ourselves of what we love. What we love is our, this life in harmony with nature on this wild and precious planet. And we've got to fight for it like we've never fought before. And we will get engaged what, when we're at that kind of intimate level, like not peeling our kiwi fruit or making sure no plastic at all comes into the house and if it does, it must be repurposed and not consuming. So it's not even about the reusable economy. It's about consuming the bare minimum, the only what we absolutely need. And so that then begets further action, that begets further care, that then begets a movement that will see the corporations and the governments change policy because that is what's got to happen. But corporations and governments listen to people like you and I. They observe people like you and I. Look at Woolworths and what they've done and a lot of the big companies. They haven't changed because they've gone, oh, the scientists finally got to us. They've changed because their consumers finally got to them. And so they're now committing to um, no plastic by 2025. They've committed to net zero emissions by 2025. They're making their fleets all electric. They're getting solar panels on the top of their supermarkets. This change is happening. And I've spoken to the CEO. He said it's because they watch what their consumers are doing and they realise this is a movement that they've got to be part of and they've got to be servicing their consumers. That's the world we live in. It's a capitalist world. So the more we shift and the more we demand this kind of thing um, and intrinsically just find it charming and embrace it and love it and live it, the more these corporations and the government will shift. And you may have heard of Erica Chenoweth. She's a researcher who did a big study of all peaceful protests over a sort of 100-year period up until about, I think it was about 2007. And what she found was where 3.5% of any given population, whether it's a school, a town, a country, a planet, engaged in peaceful protest, engaged, like signed up, fronted up, put their, you know, walked the talk, um, the change happened. You only need 3.5%. And that, that engagement can take the form of um, caring about food waste, um, not getting a takeaway coffee cup, refusing it, being involved in a, in a, a local project that tries to ban them for a week like we did. Um, that kind of thing, you only need 3.5% for human psychology to shift at a grand meta, as you said, level. So don't lose hope that your small stuff doesn't count. Now, what you also need to be doing is protesting 
And, oh, what do you know, voting, because we happen to be in a wonderful position here in Australia. We've got an election coming up, and I would argue it's one of the most important elections in our history, if not in the world's history. And I've heard a few people say this as well, because how we vote is it's going to be a climate election, I think, to a certain extent, to a large extent, especially with these climate independence that I know there's one running in your seat um, up there in McKellar, there's one running in my seat. And for those of you who are listening and are not familiar with this, there's around about a dozen, happens to be all female, because female, women tend to be on the ground doing the grassroots active, you know, activism. So there's these female climate orientated or climate focused independents who are running up against incumbent liberals who aren't doing enough on climate. And so they're targeting or they're emerging, I should say, because it's not a targeted campaign. It's really a grassroots campaign. It happens to be getting critical mass. They're, um, they're, they're targeting the people who aren't doing enough and it happens to be all liberal men. And um, they have a very good chance of getting maybe three to four of these uh, three to four wins. What that means is that whoever it wins, whether it's Labor or Liberal at the next election, the right or the left, uh, these climate-oriented uh, independents will hold the balance of power. That's the likely scenario. And so therefore they'll be able to negotiate on these really important policies at this time in history, like existentially important, like climate, like corruption, because of course that feeds into the climate thing when you've got fossil fuel industries um, donating huge sums to the major parties um, and, and getting to dictate the agenda, um, the gender imbalance and, and issues there around sexual violence, particularly in Parliament House. I mean, it's just like a week doesn't go by without some new um, horrible, horrible, uh, you know, disaster happening. And then the final one is an Indigenous voice to Parliament. So they're the, sort of the, the policies that most of these independents are going to campaign on. So anyway, I do digress there, but that is something that we can do. We can vote and, you know, we only get that opportunity every three to four years here in Australia. Bam, we've got it coming up. Um, and you can switch your electricity provider and your insurance and banking. That can be done really swiftly these days and I can't encourage it enough. Um, and you start to see that shifting um, because all the superannuation companies are now having to switch because they know their consumers want funds with legitimate ESG policies. So these might be, you know, considering, and of course, this is not financial advice, but maybe just do your own homework on all of these things, That's which is right. like the likes of Australian Ethical, which is, of course, a, a B Corp or Beyond Bank or Bank Australia, who also have B Corp status. These are, sounds like some potentially pretty easy ways if you were just looking at your, you know, your sustainability metrics as a, as a, as a human. Um, thinking about switching providers might be one one easy step. Uh, to, yeah, to, and to... it can be done very, very simply online. Um, yeah, electricity, um, your electricity provider, your banking, your superannuation, your investments. They're four things that you can, can do. Um, and another thing that you can do that's really important at the moment is electrify everything. So, um, and that's something I did a podcast with Saul Griffith, who's the big voice in this. He's um, President Biden's uh, renewable energy advisor. He happens to live in Wollongong um, and he's this incredible voice in this area and he's done all the research to show that that is the one, number one thing from his point of view that we can do is electrify everything. So if you're about to replace a car, you must get an EV. Um, if you're renovating your kitchen, do not get gas. And in parts of Australia, it's already been phased out. You literally can't have a new home with gas in it um, because it's just toxic. Don't get fooled by the natural gas thing. I did for many years. Um, gas has got to go. There is no future for gas. Get an induction stove. That'll change your life. So um, electrify as much as you can. And then of course, support major parties that will ensure that we switch to a fully renewable system as soon as possible. We come across climate skeptics, and um, I listened to, oh, we do. <laughs> to 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 your podcast the the other the other day where you're um, interviewing uh, Emily Atkin, and mm -hmm. uh, from Heated, yeah, yes, from Heated. So go and check that out as well. Uh, big shout out, and um, you you guys talk about climate skeptics and that there are some people you can never reach. And of course, you know, people are very, very skilled in, in lobbying and finding any angle, you know, PR teams mm -hmm. that are that are beholden to certain, you know, legacy interests, etc. I'm thinking here, you know, when, when 
when Tesla and other EV uh, early adopters and innovators were, were driving that agenda and, of course, have influenced every major car manufacturer to go down the, the, the same route now, there was always this sort of scepticism that, you know, yes, you might have a Tesla, but, you know, you're still charging it at home and you're still using fossil fuels to uh, to to generate the electricity of course now 10 years on there are there are more options and of course you know m- many people are switching towards renewable energy in their homes and their offices etc what are the sort of common observations or 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 some of the common misconceptions that you like demystifying or, or debunking when it comes to these kind mm. of um, excuses for for for, for not uh, adopting new technologies? Yeah, well, a big one is the doomers. So we used to have the denialists, you know, who would tell us that, oh, there's not enough science there. Well, actually, there is. Um, And I think most people have come to realise that you can't use that denial line anymore. And so even the fossil fuel companies have given up on the denial thing, which they led the charge on. I don't know if your listeners are aware of this history, but um, Exxon Mobile, uh, mobile um, 30 years ago, they managed to get hold of the science that showed that climate change was real and human caused by fossil fuel extraction. And they um, withheld it. And what they did was they realized that there was enough science to get people a bit wondering. But what they did is they just started the campaign of doubt. So move from denialism to doubt. You plant the seed of doubt and you say, well, listen, the science is only X, Y, Z confirmed. And they would push that. And, of course, it's very hard to counter it because, of course, very little science is 100% airtight, Um, you know, particularly when there's so many variables. But over time we've realised the science was there 30 years ago. We now know it's been excavated. We now know that it's been hidden from us. We now know the truth. Um, that doesn't hold any longer. So now the, they've moved to the, the idea of doomism. So watch out for that. That's this idea that it's too late to act, so why bother? And let's move, instead move it into sort of adaptation. Um, and there is a certain element to that, that it is actually too late. We are not going to be able to keep things below 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial temperatures. Um, however, we can still do a hell of a lot to make sure that we can survive longer than if we do nothing at all. So, um, that is something that they're doing at the moment and they're fueling discussions around that. And then you sort of see all these discussions around, oh, but, you know, we can't transition. So that's that's particularly one. It's too hard to transition, um, you know, and so we need to keep coal going. And it's like, well, yes, we've got to look after the coal workers because it's totally unfair that they've been, you know, that they're just going to be left out of the equation. So there needs to be a just transition. Okay, so that's always part of any environmentalist or climate activist. That is always part of the program is a just transition and retrain for the coal industry. Anybody's working in mines. Now, I should point out this is oh the other big one, jobs and growth. Right. What are we going to do if we get rid of coal? All these jobs are going to be lost. That's complete furphy. There's only 20,000 jobs in Australia in coal. Now, just to give you some perspective on this, there's 100,000 jobs at Woolworths. Um, I think it's like either Melbourne or Sydney Airport has 30,000 jobs. Um, Even in the electorates where coal is sort of, you know, big, so far north Queensland, there are I think only 11 areas where there is a workforce comprised of coal workers above 5% of the population, the working population. So it's not... It's not this idea that that there's all these people in coal that are going to be put out of work. It's great news. We can transition them. We can give them new jobs in the new energy sector. We can start to put wind farms and solar farms in these areas. I mean, there are solutions for all of it. So when people tell you, oh, we can't lose the jobs and the transition is going to be too hard, that's the least of our problems, right? We've invented this incredible technology. Actually, implementing it is not too difficult. We've put People on the moon, we can do this. Um, the other thing is it's, you know, gosh, we don't have time to invent all this technology. All the technology, all the solutions exist on the planet today. They've just got to be implemented. So that's another great news message. The doomers try to tell us, oh, God, we don't have time to actually do this. Yeah, no, it exists. Don't worry about it. 
people have done it already. We just need somebody to implement it. Um, and we need to do it all at once. All the solutions need to be done all at once. Then we get told, oh, yes, there's not going to be enough jobs. People are going to lose jobs overall. For every coal job, there are about three to four jobs in renewable energy. So there's this, and especially over the next couple of years, if we transition, the amount of work installing solar panels on homes, um, all of that kind of thing, getting people's kitchens set up, um, there's a huge amount of jobs that are going to be available over the next 10 years as we rapidly transition, which is an awesome way to have a COVID recovery. Except, unfortunately, our COVID recovery body was stacked with oil industry people. Um, so, of course, none of these solutions came to the fore, which would have been awesome. It would have been an awesome way to come out of COVID, right? Um, so, there, I would say that just about every argument that gets put to somebody like me can be countered really effortlessly with not just something that goes, oh, no, it's not as bad as you think. It's like, no, the solution that I'm proposing is infinitely better. Yeah, and then, of course, the other criticism becomes almost like a character assassination or a personality criticism, which goes, well, it's easy to say if you're Sarah Wilson and you're living in Bondi or you're Dave Sharma or if you're Anders Ulmer Nilsson in Avalon because, you know, they are disconnected somehow from the reality on, on the ground where, where some of these, you know, traditional jobs are. And I think what I'm, what I'm sort of sensing there as well, I mean, I remember you know, Malcolm Turnbull and talking about innovation nation and, you know, the jobs of the future is that people find and struggle to develop the sense of trust that there is a story that somehow bridges the the here and now with the emergence of those new jobs. And so there's this sort of distrust in, in, in the narrative. And I guess that's where, you know, even, even the numbers and the evidence-based story, the science, sort of science fiction story, you're telling there is how do we actually get the 3.5% or the critical mass to to truly believe i mean there are many, there are many early adopters and innovators who of course you know say hallelujah to all of this but how do, how do you get some of the skeptics to actually come on board and and see the merit in 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 some of that evidence based analysis well first of all i would say again we make the new way more charming than the status quo Okay, so you sell it in. I did an interview with Seth Godin who sort of said that, yeah, Sarah, you've got to show them why, you know, you've got to show them that this is going to make them look good, feel good, live longer, be richer, whatever it is, make it more charming than the status quo. So that's what I try to do. And it's, I'm not, I mean, I live in Bondi. I am in an elite realm, but I don't live a necessarily elite life in the sense that I don't own a car. I, um, don't consume, I don't buy new things, I live very, very simply, um, which I guess in some ways my privilege affords me that in many ways. Um, but that leads me to the second aspect of all of this. We've got to have really good leadership. This is what we're missing. Now, cast your mind back, and a lot of people in my position do use the parallel of World War II. World War II, Winston Churchill and so on, they had to convince a whole bunch of people to go out there and fight a war. And over in the US, they had to send troops over to a war in a completely different continent. Here in Australia, we had to do the same. Um, and they had to also convince in the US, they, their top tax rate during the war was 94%. I mean, can you imagine? 94% was the top tax rate. Um, they had to do rations. We did rations here in Australia for a war in another place, part of the world. The US did the same. Um, they mobilized from a consumer economy to a wartime economy in a matter of weeks. So factories that were making cars switched to making tanks. And this happened so fast. And it's because the leaders were able to tell a story that mobilized people around a sense of sacrifice and duty and stepping up to the social good. Whatever we think of war, I mean, it's contextual, uh, but at the time that was considered the noble thing to do. They were rendered choiceless um, by the, the circumstances of the era. Um, so if they can do that, well, I can't, you know, we need leaders who can do the same sort of thing. They've got to actually capture people's imagination. And Winston Churchill was incredibly elitist, right? But he was able to catch capture the imagination of some of the poorest people in the UK. 
And I know you've probably heard the story. He would catch the bus home or the train home uh, and absorb what real people were discussing and how they were feeling about the war effort. He listened. He absorbed the messages. And he came through with a, a thread that it didn't matter where you came from. It was the human thread. So we have the capacity to do that. And I would say that it's another sort of um, doomist, avoidant, uh, thing to say that, oh, very well for you, Sarah in Bondi. You know what I mean? Like, I think this storyline is a human storyline. The other thing is, is that I think climate activists and people engaged in this have a very good awareness of ensuring that we bring along everybody. Um, there's a sense that, um, you know, the climate crisis is a racist issue. It's also very gendered. Um, and we're aware of this. We're aware of this and anyone who steps up to the plate to lead on this particular issue is going to be aware of these things from the outset. The poorest people in the world live next to the most polluted sources of, you know, effluent and, and chemicals and so on. And this has got to be borne in mind. Um, and so climate changes or sort of changes to our way of living that benefit the climate are also going to have exponential effect on the poorest people in the world. I mean, it's a horrible fact that it's the very wealthy that contribute most of the carbon emissions and it's the very poor that are going to be most impacted going forward. And so I feel when people ask me about my privilege in this space, what I say is I have a particular responsibility because of my privilege to step forward and reduce, reduce my emissions you know, I've got to here at the age of 48 with um, living in a very white world, uh, a very Western world, and we've benefited from, you know, the, the rape and pillage of the planet. So I need to now make some sort of sacrifice for everybody else and for the future generations. So my answer to that is, yep, okay, I'm privileged. And so now I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to do everything I can. And that's what I would invite everybody else to do. So and I would invite leaders who are stepping forward thinking that they can run the country or run their electorate is to take that on board themselves as well because it's the only way we're going to change. And it's the only way we're going to like ourselves as humans. I do this because I want people to like themselves as humans again. At the moment, we are feeling quite cringy because look what we've done. And unlike the war, the war was something where there was an enemy out there and it was being done to us, you know. Um, it was either the Nazis or the communists. There's always been somebody else. With the climate crisis, unfortunately, we, to a certain extent, have to take on some of the responsibility. Now, I would ask, argue, and you would have heard me talk about it with Emily Atkin in that interview uh, on Wild, my podcast, um, she makes the point that we actually do have an enemy, and that is the fossil fuel industry. And so we should rage and we should get angry and we should rise up against them like we did uh, in, in previous world war efforts. Um, but it's a bit of a twofold thing. So um, storyline, we need good storyline. We need good leaders. Well, I think about, you know, Joseph Campbell's idea of the, the hero's journey and, and answering yes. the call to arms. And, um, and it's good that, you know, Emily Atkins might have been tuned into this as well, that, you know, without a sort of a, you know, a visible enemy um, and, you know, meeting the mentors and the hero picking up, you know, and going out on, on, on their quest uh, towards mm -hmm. transformation and all the rest, um, that it actually is kind of hard, hard to mobilize, but um, it, it seems like the, the enemy is now being identified in, in that journey. I think so. And we've got every right to feel angry. And I think people feel very self-conscious about being angry, but these are desperate times and it's an, anger is an entirely appropriate reaction. And that's what I try to tell everybody don't feel funny about being angry or even being scared or any of these things. It's appropriate. And once you actually accept that, then you can move through it and use that emotion to activate you, you know. Um, and, and, and I think that's a really important, once again, we need leaders who can discuss these kinds of things with nuance and care and compassion and inclusivity. Um, one thing I think that is also a little bit of a shift in that thinking that I've come across, um, James Hollis is an incredible Jungian psychotherapist and he's based in Washington, D.C. and he's in his 80s now, but he's had a prolific impact on a whole bunch of different thinkers um, and he's worked with all different kinds of philosophers over the years. And he has a wonderful phrase and it's, our souls are being called to an appointment with life. 
And it's our job then to actually listen to what our souls are telling us and turn up and meet life, you know. So the, our souls get little reminders. So it might be a whisper in the ear, an irky feeling. Then we get a little tap on the shoulder. Then we get a shove and then we'll get an almighty slap down. And that's happening at the individual level but also at a, at a societal level. So we're getting reminders, hey, this is not right show up, meet life where it's at, where we're trying to go against the flow of life here. And so while we might be saying that we need an enemy, we need all these different other kinds of things, in many ways, um, I think the impetus is that internal itch, that internal sense that our souls are trying to tell us something. This is not right. This is no way to have a life. This consumer sort of treadmill we're on, it's a con, and nature and life is over there, you know, that's where we're meant to be, show up, show up, show up. And as humans, we've caused the problems around us, but gosh, we've got the capacity to also fix it, you know, and that is what we're being, we've been, we're being called up to be of duty, to be of service. Now, I would say most people and I don't know, I can't speak for everybody listening, but if you've stayed into this conversation this long, perhaps something resonates. Um, I would say we're longing for that invitation. We're longing for that sort of almost command to step up and be and, and shake away from that individualistic neoliberal mindset and to be part of something bigger. So that's another way to frame it rather than just, you know, there's an enemy and we've got to fight against it. And I know I brought up that analogy, but I think there's this other way of viewing it. Again, it's more charming, isn't it? It's more positive. It's more inclusive. It feels like it makes sense. It's not like we're trying to reinvent anything. We're trying to join back in to what always was. You brought up this idea of eating and, and thriftiness around food. It really is just going back to the way our grandmothers and our great-grandmothers used to behave. It's just a returning. We're returning to how we're meant to be and we have a really good chance of correcting things if we return to who we're meant to be and listen to that calling from our soul. There's, um, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, feeling-based words in what, what you're describing there and, um, you know, we've talked about anger, anxiety. There's a, there's a new term now in the climate debate which talks about pre-traumatic stress disorder, which is, you know, a, a new generation now being so fearful of the climate crisis that is potentially ensuing unless we get our act together by 2030. I haven't heard that term before, but I imagine what you're referring to is, you know, millennials not having children, um, you know, and so on. I think it's a terrible term in the sense that it's not a disorder. I think it's an entirely appropriate reaction. And this is the thing is, you know, we're, we keep thinking that there's this normal and that anything that is a reaction to the actual circumstances of the planet we're living in must be abnormal if it doesn't fit how things used to be. Uh, we've got to we've got to break from that. And the younger generations, like young people, get that. They're actually taking life on face value, you know, and they're feeling it. And so, if, if anything, we need to turn to them for the normal behaviour, the normal response. Okay, that's the normal response to freak out and go, "I'm not having kids." Um, that to me seems exceedingly, exceedingly um, healthy and appropriate. And it, anyway, sorry. But it, it, you know, and it's a huge um, sort of contra-evolutionary taking of responsibility for what is also, you know, a, a global crisis at a very individual individual level. I mean, I know from my Swedish compatriot, Gerda Thunberg, you know, she talks about the fact that she has both autism and, and selective mutism and that, you know, she she responds and, and, and speaks when it's necessary. And I think that's such a powerful story. And of course, that sort of long-term intergenerational view is one that's often uh, been talked about when we're trying to convince parents and, and decision makers that they need to make a decision that's positive for future generations. The sustainability definition, of course, is, you know, meeting today's needs of the present generation without jeopardizing those of future generations. So I'm I'm curious, what, what's what's the cost of inaction on, on climate at the moment, either for Australia or on a global level for those uh, that are tuning in from other parts of the world and Australia? Well, we live in a neoliberal world, so we probably have to put it to a financial, you know, answer um, or amount, uh, cost value. Um, I would, I mean, a lot of people are saying there's literally not enough money on the planet to be able to um, attend to climate disasters over the coming 20 years. Um, there's not enough 
money nor time, um, you know, to, to sort of fix a lot of the problems that will come our way if we don't act really, really fast on preventing them. Um, you know, building seawalls, you know, there's seawalls being built all around the world, around New York, um, Shanghai, Mumbai. Um, when I actually use that um, analogy or you know, example, people often get a shock. They go, are you for real? Because that's actually a tangible visual, isn't it? That sea walls are going to have to be built. But the sea it's actually got to the point where the sea levels are rising quite fast to the point where there's not the resources to build a wall high, high enough around these cities around the world. Um, so those kinds of costs are very tangible. We, in the sense that they're intangible, we, there's not enough money to fix the problems that are coming our way. Um, you know, the cost, you know, at a micro level, if you look here in Australia, um, you know, I can use the example, you know, we were going to have a carbon tax. We had it for a very brief period of time and then it was abolished. Um, and now we're in a situation where we are going to have incredible costs to our trade um, sort of bottom line because various countries, the EU, Japan, the US and Canada and a growing number of countries are talking about putting in place a border tariff. And so it's essentially a carbon tax that they'll slap on to Australian products because we don't have a carbon tax here, so our products are deemed dirty. But instead of the money coming to Australian coffers and perhaps used for wind farm stabilisers, battery technology, whatever it might be, better schools, better healthcare system for the pandemics are going to roll in in the future, um, these other governments are going to, clip the tax. On top of that, because our products will be dirty, um, they'll be less favourable in a world economy where green products are going to be the desirable product. So we'll hop a double you know, whack. So there's a whole lot of financial costs, but I would also say the cost, I mean, the rest of the, the real cost is going to be cost that it's very, very hard to put a figure to. And what I would put to people listening is um, I'd sort of almost reverse it. Can you imagine if we solve this issue, if we put our real back into it, if we do what these incredible football teams or baseball teams or, you know, basketball teams do where you're 30 seconds from the siren, you're three points down and what are you going to do? Are you just going to give in or are you going to let go of the rules, let go of your own selfish interests, whether the ball was passed enough times to you in the second half or whatever, and you just go at it kamikaze style and you just throw everything at it. And history is full of these incredible stories, incredible matches where, you know, um, the losing team came, came through out of nowhere and managed to win in the last like half a millisecond. And I feel that we've got the capacity to do that. And if we do, can you imagine how awesome it will be to be human? You know, so it's a missed opportunity cost. That's how I try to see it. We will miss an incredible opportunity to rise to our appointment with life, to be the humans that I think the species that we have evolved to be. We've got the capacity. We've got the moral capacity, the insight, the intelligence, the physical capacity. We've got a whole range of things that have, uh, we're, we're at peak human levels, right? we could actually become awesome or we could continue as we are being selfish little species that basically we will eat ourselves in the petri dish that we've created that's what that's our choice so i prefer to see it as lost opportunity costs you know um, because that frames it in the positive. Yeah, and I think you know the the fascinating thing there, and we are into to use the you know sports parlance here into the final innings. Um, we are you know at this point in history where where also Wall Street seems to be waking up to this. Uh, you know the likes of Larry Fink from from BlackRock or. You know, activist investors like Engine Number One, for example, are now you know voting off climate skeptics from Exxon's board. I mean, there are, and then of course, all the academic research shows that. And I, of course, we have to be a bit careful with this in terms of what the share market's doing. But they've you know taken a longer term perspective on what ESG compatible businesses are doing when it comes to the share market performance. 
and they are trumping and, and exceeding in terms of operational performance, in terms of cost of capital, etc. They are outperforming their laggard peers. So it, it seems like even the capitalism that it's you know that it's easy to point a finger to is waking up to the opportunities, whether that's from a profit motive or, or just from 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 the correct ethos. Um, are you okay if if Wall Street wakes up and even if they're doing it out of a profit motive, are you okay if they make the right decision? I don't bloody care how it happens. And we don't have change we don't have time to overthrow the system that we're in. And we are firmly in a capitalist system. And what I would argue is that capitalism has always had the scope to move in good directions. It's quite malleable. Um, we do need to uncouple capitalism from consumption at all costs. And so I think there's really interesting developments in the area of degrowth economics um, and, you know, also called donut economics. There is, capitalism has the ability to actually provide for a climate solution. And at the moment, it's actually the system that is doing the best job so far. So I would say that we can't mix with, mess with that. Um, I think we've got to constantly question capitalism, especially um, neoliberalism, which is its kind of uh, which is kind of capitalism on steroids. It's where the things that kept capitalism in check were removed and became neoliberalism. So things like trade unions and checks and balances were removed, sort of in the 1970s and 1980s, and here we are in an unchecked, un monitored system. So I think we need to go back to the original roots of capitalism and I think it can provide the solution. But I'm investigating an area which I'm sure you'd be interested in called metamodernism. And a lot of the big thinkers come out of Sweden in this area and the Nordic countries. It's a very Nordic uh, concept and I find it fascinating. And they've got a phrase which I use a lot and that just helps me daily. And that is all systems are flawed, but some parts of each one can be useful. And so we need to get actually very okay with questioning everything around us, but not to slander it, not to cancel it, but to actually cherry pick the bits that can actually help us to move forward. And capitalism has a hell of a lot to offer. And if that is the system that is enabling things to shift as it is at the moment, then let's embrace it. Yeah, because there are, of course, thinkers like Andrew McAfee at MIT who talks about, you know, doing more with less. And an example of that would be, you know, an innovation like the iPhone, which, of course, now, you know, we, we trade it in if we if we need to upgrade to the latest model. It actually means that Apple has become one of the biggest gold miners in the world because they take the cobalt, the lithium and, and the gold out of the previous model. They recycle it, upcycle it and turn it into a new model. And if we look at the types of products that the iPhone has replaced, if you go back to the 1990s and, you know, an old Radio Shack or JB Hi-Fi ad, for example... You know, you would have needed 13 to 20 different types of physical hardware to deliver all the services that, of course, are now in your iPhone. So we are learning to tread more lightly on the planet while at the same time actually having productivity gains at the same time. But Apple only got rid of their planned obsolescence and it's only just happened in Europe because consumers revolted, right? And so that's what I'll always say is that we only get the change when we speak up, show up, front up, and we fight somewhat. So, um, and I would also say that when Apple started to realize, if, if we all stopped replacing our phone just because the screen cracked or we didn't buy into their, oh, you need the iPhone 13 now, I don't know why because there's an extra camera or whatever. If we stop buying into that, then they'd actually have to come up with better ways of making their products more sustainable for themselves and their bottom line and for the planet. So, I would say it's twofold. Don't buy into this side. Don't buy into their messages. You know what I mean? Um, and then, and then, secondly, voice up when their messages aren't right, and you want things to change because they listen. Corporations listen. They listen. Unbelievable. Those letters that you can write to them. I, I'm constantly writing letters to people, and they do listen. If they care, begets care. The world responds to um, fired up um, devotion to what matters. And we're looking for it in all directions. And if you if you show that it's contagious, it's completely contagious. Um, so I think to your point, yes, the world's shifting, but it's shifting because we're shifting. So we've just got to keep shift faster. And then the corporations will listen to us. And it becomes this wonderful, wonderful cascading event that cascades in the right direction. Of course, one of the interesting thing about the internet is that it's largely still ad funded. And of course, those ads are funded by 
you know, consumer product companies, for example, who are trying to push more stuff. I mean, Facebook is essentially still, you know, a, a glorified, um, you know, um, advertising model. And of course, the whole internet is, is ad funded. And we have at our disposal, both you and I, this uh, amazing medium uh, that is very old school kind of business model funded by moving more products. I'm not saying our podcasts are, but uh, the internet is fundamentally ad funded. And I am curious in, in that and doing a sort of a full circle on, on, on today's episode of the second renaissance is that we're coming back to fundamental letter writing here to, to, to tell a new story beyond this amazing scalable medium that we both have at our fingertips as well. Yeah, you do what you have to do to show that you care and sometimes it's sort of about rejecting the easy the easy ways that have been plonked in front of us, which is just to write a tweet or put a like on something. When people actually step away from that and show they care in whatever format and sometimes it often takes an organic human approach, then that's what becomes powerful. Um, but one thing you said about Facebook and the power that it has, I mean, I don't shop online so I don't get ads sent my way. Uh, you know, it's like everything begets something else. You shop, it begets more ads to shop and you get stuck in that rut. You've got to choose your rut. What rut do you want to be in? What groove do you want to be in in life? And if you go hiking on a weekend instead of shopping, then you meet other hikers and they make you feel included in things and you get to hold stories and you have adventures and you meet more people who are adventurous and they're the people that you want to be around and they enliven you, you know. So um, we have options here and all of the options become contagious if you make them charming enough. Yeah. And now this is not a, a product push in any way because that would be unethical of me. I mean, you can pick this up from a community library uh, near you. It's Please been, do. Uh, <laughs> I love libraries. <laughs> great community library uh, nearby. Uh, it's been a great uh, holiday read out in uh, the Kurungai National Park for me, um, where I also got um, inspired to get back to nature and do some good bushwalking. So, uh, Wonderful. Sarah Wilson, thank you so much for being with us and thank you for uh, your call to arms and your leadership in, in this area. And of course, um, also helping us with this, uh, getting us, I guess, out of our sort of inertia and not just doing our bit passively but uh, joining the 3.5% that uh, it takes to, mm-hmm. to reach a real tipping point in this in this uh, yeah. wild and precious life that we have. Thank you very much and uh, yeah, um, thank you for giving me a forum to encourage everyone to fire up. Fire up and live your maximum um, because it is a one wild and precious life and it's not long. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the show in your podcatcher and I'd be super grateful if you leave a review. On the next episode of The Second Renaissance, I speak with my Swiss-German futurist colleague, Gerd Leonard. We investigate what is the meaning of the good future, why green is the new digital, the fact that the pandemic was a test run for climate change, how to redesign capitalism to ensure that it's future fit, and what the cost of inaction on climate change is. Until next time, start preparing for the future because it is where you and your children will spend the rest of your lives. For more information about the Second Renaissance and our work on sustainable innovation, please visit my website, www.andersulmanilson.com. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. We hope that what we learn together on the second renaissance can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.